up everybody it's your host Jonah. welcome back to the blue collar enlightenment show and if you're new thanks for tuning in smash that follow button so you don't miss any new episodes tease out today she's watching the girl she's hanging out with them but i have a special guest host my son ethan he is a twitch streamer he, i'll go ahead and let him plug his twitch real quick with it all right hey guys um you can follow my twitch it's at yoda i am 51 uh no spaces capital y awesome all right and we have vic back for a third time welcome back vic how you doing Hey, hey, Jonah, how's it going? Thank you for uh, having me back on your show. Well, I'm doing awesome. How about you? How are you feeling today? Uh, tired. Tired? Yeah. You excited? Yeah. First time on the episode? Yeah. Awesome. What have you been up to? Uh, I just, uh, I just, I mean, after writing a series of NYPD books, I decided to change gears a little bit. I, I just released a new book called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. It's about my life before I joined the New York City Police Department. It's basically me running around the Bronx as a little son of a bitch causing trouble. And my parents <laughs> sent me to Catholic school. I wanted nothing to do with it. But at the end of the day, it was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me and probably saved my life and kept me on the straight and narrow. Right on. I grew up Catholic myself. And uh, my dad actually went to a Catholic school here in Oklahoma. Yeah, I wanted nothing to do with it. Like my first eight years of, of uh, you know, education was the New York City public school system. And one night in like eighth grade, my, we're sitting around the dinner table and my dad says, um, listen, next year you're going to Catholic school. And I'm like, Catholic school? I'm like, we don't even go to mass. Like we weren't holy rollers. I mean, I made my sacraments, but that's about it. And he says, well, he goes, you're a clown. And if you go to public school, you're going to become a bigger clown. He says, so pick us high school run by the men in black. He goes, I don't care if they're priests, Christian brothers, Jesuits, nuns. I don't give a shit. You're going to Catholic school next year. And I was devastated. I was like, wait a minute. Well, what, what is this stuff? Corporal punishment and these guys in these robes running around? Like, I, I wanted nothing to do with it. So thinking back, what's one of the most crazy events that you had happened in high school? Oh, God, there's so many. Um so when I first, so just, just to give you an example, before you even get into Catholic high school back then, I don't know what it's like now, but the New York city had so many Catholics that it was like a privilege to go to Catholic high school. You had to take an entrance exam in eighth grade. It was like, almost like the NFL combine. So they picked a day in October and there was hundreds of kids that went to public schools and we went to several different Catholic schools and you had to take an exam. It was like a placement exam. And then based on your grades, the Catholic schools would send you invitations and you would go and they would interview you and see if they were going to allow you in. So I'm, it's my first time going to a Catholic school for anything to take this test. And there's a line to get into the schoolyard and there's these two nuns with bullhorns. And they're, they're yelling, pointing people in different directions. They've got a clipboard. It was like like going into a Manhattan club. There were like a couple of bouncers. Like, all right, what's your name? Ferrari Finnegan, room 305. So I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, I, you know, public school, like anything went. There was definitely more structure to it. So then during, during my exam, they seated us one seat apart from each other so we couldn't cheat, which that used to go on in public school all the time. And a kid that I grew up with is sitting a row behind me and he's going, hey, Ferrari, psst, let me see your answer key. Psst. 
So I show him my answer key, right? He copies down what he's got to copy. And, you know, about a half hour later, we get up to leave. And the nun grabs the both of us, grabs me by the collar and grabs him by the ear and drags us down the hallway. And she's like, I, I know what you're doing. I saw you guys cheating. And she goes, you'll never go to the school. You'll never, you're never going to get into this school. So I'm just standing there with my mouth hanging open. And then my friend turns around. He wasn't too bright. He asked what I was thinking. He goes, well, does that mean we're not allowed to go to any Catholic high school? She took the two of us like a bouncer and threw us right out of the school. You know, we're standing outside and I'm like, Holy shit. Like, how does this work? Like, why are these people so angry? But P.S., I passed the test. That school didn't call me. Another school called me. And uh, I began my Catholic high school career. That's crazy. I never would have thought it was like that. Oh, my book opens up with me getting chased out of a confessional. I mean, even before I got into Catholic high school, I had to make my I was making my confirmation. And a couple of days before, you've got to make your confession. And uh, I forgot to tell my father and it was last minute. And he goes, well, what time, what time is confession? I go from five to seven. He goes, get in the car. So we rush over to the church and my father's sitting in the car. My brother and I get out. We walk up to the church. There's no one around. You got this little old priest with a ring of keys and he's locking up the church. And I'm like, father, we're here to make our confession. And he goes, what time were you supposed to make your confession? We said five to seven. He goes, well, it's 10 after seven. So now he's all bent out of shape. He goes, why are you late? So I said, my father got a flat tire coming over to the church. Now, I realized lying to a priest moments before going into a confession booth isn't the right way about going about things. But I figured I had to get my foot in the door. And I figured if he wasn't too judgmental after confession, I would tell him about the opening lie. He lets me and my brother into this dark church. He goes over to a board. He flicks some switches. The lights come on. We go down this dark hallway. We go down a flight of stairs. I get into the confession booth. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. And I don't remember what it was, but it's been four years since my last confession. And this priest throws a shit fit. And, you know, he's on the other side of the confession booth through that dark screen. And he's like, four years? Where the hell have you been all this time? And I'm like, oh, uh, you know, we've kind of been busy. He goes, what's the, he's just lecturing me. So, I mean, how many sins does a 13-year-old have to confess, really? Like, I hadn't committed adultery you know, I hadn't covered a neighbor's wife. I hadn't killed anybody. I'm 13 years old. Like, how many sins do I really got, you know, floating around? So the only thing I could think of is I threw him. I go, listen, I said, I've been disrespectful to my grandmother. And he goes, your grandmother is an old woman. And I'm saying to myself, how the fuck does he know how old my grandmother is? But anyway, every time I confessed this trivial sin, he would scream at me more and more through the boot. So finally, I said, Father, look, you don't want me here. I don't want to be here. How about we just call it a day? Well, he goes bananas. Get out of this booth. Get out of this church. Just he jumps up and now he's screaming. I'm trying to get out of the confession booth and my younger brother's outside laughing with his weight up against the door. Got me pinned inside. So I'm like, oh, shit. I hit the confession booth door with everything I had. I send my brother on his ass sliding across the floor. The priest comes out of the other booth and now he's coming after us. We go up the stairs. We're running from the running through the church. And I'm saying to myself, if this guy gets outside and makes it to my dad, there's going to be two guys on a cross. My father would crucify me like doing something like that in the church. So I ran over to that board of lights and I started flicking the lights off in the church. I had to put some distance between him and my father. And he's screaming in the church, don't shut off those fucking lights. The church goes dark. Me and my brother run outside. We run up to the car. My father's sitting in the car, smoking a cigarette, listening to the radio. And I'm just waiting for that door of the church to pop open. And this guy's screaming, stop them, stop them. And I go, all right, dad, come on, let's go. He goes, how did it go? 
I'm like, yeah, it went fine. He goes, he goes, was the priest upset that you were late? I'm like, what? No, no, no. Dad, can we just go? Like, I, I want to watch my show. It's like after work, my dad just wanted to plop down on a couch and sleep. Today he wants to be Phil Donahue asking me stupid questions. So finally, my father puts the car in drive and we leave. So that night, nobody calls the house. Nobody stops by. I'm saying to myself, and kids, I mean, you've got a son sitting there. Kids have the memory of a fly. If if it doesn't come to get him in the first half hour, it's over. All good and forgotten. I figured we don't even go to church. So the odds of me getting busted for this stunt that I pulled, slim to none. So two days later, I go over to the church. I'm sitting in a classroom with all my friends. They're going to march us over to the church to make my confirmation. My parents are going to be there. The priest walks into the classroom and I go, oh, shit. I try slouching down inside a chair and he looks across the classroom like a police lineup and he points to me and he goes, I'd like to have a word with that young man. Teacher says, yeah, go ahead. Take him, father. He drags me out into the hallway and throws me in another classroom and whooped my ass. He was banging me up against the blackboard. And all I remember is, you know, like in a kid's classroom, you got like the ABCs, the alphabet written in cursive. So kids can look up and learn how to write in cursive. I was focusing on that as he was bitch slapping me. It was like A, B, C, D. <laughs> so finally he got he got winded after kicking my ass and he threw me into the hallway. He goes, get out of here. So I go downstairs with my class. I'm all tuned up, but I'm like, I keep my mouth shut. I make my confirmation. Afterwards, me and my family are outside the church taking photos and stuff. The old son of a bitch, the priest comes walking up to me. I'm like, shit, now he's going to take... T- tell my parents. He comes over and pinches my cheek and goes, what a fine young man. And my mother's like, oh, you know, sometimes he's like rubbing my nose and shit. Like, what am I going to do? Tell my parents. This guy just beat the shit out of me for locking him inside a church the day before. I kept my mouth shut about it, you know, and um, I just went along my merry way. I learned very early in life to suck it up. Oh, damn. That's freaking awesome. You don't have any stories like that, Ethan. You're about... You're in school right now. Yeah. What do they do when they punish you? They put us in detention. That's, lock us up in a room. That's it. Yeah, there ain't no ass beating at that school. <laughs> oh, we got both. We got ass beating and detention. I, and I, I like to say between summer school and detention, I served five and a half years of a four-year sentence. I was always in trouble. <laughs> I was too. I'm not even going to lie. I probably spent from second grade to fifth grade half the time I was in detention doing just stupid little stuff on the playground fights stuff like that well there's a story in my book and the chapter is called running for your life and it's basically a bunch of stories where I had to take off or someone was a gonna whoop my ass or b kill me in my neighborhood I used to have the ice cream man and I think is I think it was called the Pied Piper was this old man, he'd go around the neighborhood. It was two old men in a truck. And they would drive around the neighborhood, you know, kids. They hear that ice cream truck come and they lose their mind. So there was a kid that lived two doors down from me and uh, he was nuts. He basically, he had older parents. He raised himself. He had, he, he, he would do the most outrageous things to entertain himself. Like I remember the day his sister was getting married, 
He's in a tuxedo. He's like 13 years old. He's running up and down the street with bags of dog shit, ringing doorbells and setting them on fire in front of people's houses. And then when someone comes outside and sees a bag on fire, they stomp out the fire and they've got hot dog shit all over their legs. He's doing that there in front of his house. His sister's getting married and he's in a tuxedo running around with bags of dog shit, setting them on fire in front of people's front doors. So he was nuts. And, uh, one day the ice cream man comes and he gets into an argument with the ice cream man. And the ice cream man basically tells him, get, get the hell out of here. You couldn't do that with this kid because he was nuts. So what he does is he goes into his house. He comes running outside with, with, with two dozen eggs and he starts passing them out. He goes, fuck this guy. Let's egg the ice cream man. So we all grab eggs and we're just firing eggs inside the ice cream truck. And the old man takes off like, you know, the ice cream truck takes off covered in eggs playing Yankee Doodle Dandy down the street or, you know, Pop Goes the Weasel, right? We're all laughing. We think it's the funniest thing in the world. We ate the shit out of this poor old man. And, you know, we're all like pounding our chest. We're like 13 years old. Fuck him. You know what I mean? We we showed him. So about two or three days later, we hear the ice cream man's truck sign. You know, we hear the sound coming. And I go, could that be him? And we see him turn in the corner. I go, he's got some pair of balls. So that kid, Ricky, goes running back into his house and comes out with more eggs. Like, he's this guy's either got to have dementia or a death wish, and he comes back to the block. The old man pulls up to the block, and he's got this big shit-eating grin on his face, right? He puts the, the, the ice cream truck in park. He goes over to the glass doors, and he opens it up, and he goes, How you doing, you little cocksuckers? The back door of the ice cream truck bursts open and all his grandsons and nephews come running out with baseball bats. And like, oh, shit, it was like a fucking Trojan horse. And these guys, like we were like 13, 14. He had all his nephews and grandkids. They were like 16, 17 with baseball bats. They were chasing us up and down the street, like beating the shit out of people. So we took off in different directions and we were like, holy shit. Like, you know, this guy's no fucking joke. So, like, we never fucked with the ice cream man again after that. Yeah, that's uh, you don't mess with the ice cream man's route. That's his money. Oh God! Then there, yeah, and then we had this. There was a um, another Catholic-run institution. It's called Saint Joseph School for the Deaf. It's deaf. It's in like a virtual no man's land, and I mean, it's got these large spro. It's got to be it looks like it's a hundred acres of property. And what we would do is my friends and I, we were younger, we would burrow under the fence and they had an apple orchard, old apple orchards. And we would pick the crab apples and then we would walk to the end of the property. And then there was a dip and beneath it, there was the roadway of cars that used to get on the Whitestone bridge. So we would take these old crab apples and fire them off the roofs of cars. And it was funny because the cars couldn't stop. They're going 70 miles an hour and there's no exit, so they can't get off. They have to go on the bridge and pay a toll. So, And this is before cell phones and stuff. So it was almost like you were never going to get caught. So we would do it a couple of times a week. We'd ding cars with, with these crab apples and laugh as they would dry, get on the bridge. And they're never coming back. So one day we hear a, a steel door slam open. And like 200 yards away coming out of the St. Joseph School for the Deaf are these two fat, middle-aged security guards. And you can see them. They're waddling. And we're laughing at them because, like, they're 200 yards away. We're 13 years old. They're never going to catch us. We kept throwing. They're telling us to stop. We're still throwing the apples. And then when they got within 100 yards of us, we started throwing the apples at them. And this went on 
for weeks that they would come out and chase us and we never got caught. So one day a bunch of us go, there's about four or five of us doing this again and uh, steel door flies open. But this time a guy shoots out of the, out of, out of that building and he's like a fucking cheetah running across the Serengeti. And I look up and I go, I, I turn to my brother. I'll never forget this. I go, that ain't one of them fat security guards. I said, they hired themselves a fucking ring. Or I go, he's, I said, this guy's like a fucking heat-seeking missile, man. He's coming fast. They hired like a 22-year-old kid as a security guard, and he's coming across that field. And I said, we got to go. So my brother and I were always athletic. A couple of the guys we were with weren't. My brother and I took off first. We threw down the apples. We took off. We climb underneath the fence. And one of the guys that, that we left behind who was not athletic he had a big mouth. Like we used to say, if he got busted, it was like busting God. He'd give up your name, your social security number, where you lived, where your father worked. So we said, we better, before he makes it to his parents' house, me and my brother went to his parents' house and we waited for him. He comes back about 45 minutes later. His shirt has been torn into shreds. His face is red. He's got a fat lip and he's crying. I'm like, I guess the security guard got you. He's like, yeah, he's crying. I go, did you, did you rat us out? And he goes, yeah. I go, what did he say? He goes, he didn't care. He was too busy kicking the shit out of me. I go, did he write down the names? He goes, no. So that was another time we never went back to St. Joseph's School to the death and throw fucking apples because it just wasn't worth it. Yep. Oh, man. Crab apples. I remember those stupid things. We, uh, I'll tell you a story about those. You, uh, I don't know if you ever had senior skip day back then, right? Had what? The senior skip day. Yes. That day when all the seniors. Yeah, 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 yeah. That night we were going to a party and my buddy, he would always park his truck under those crab apple trees. And so his bed was full of them. And uh, a bunch of us were in the back of the truck while we we're headed to this party. And we started throwing them in front of us at this other truck. Well, one guy wasn't paying attention and he threw it as the truck was coming to a stop and it went right through the back window. That cat got out and that them two started fighting down in the ditch on, on, one, of, on one of the main roads in town while we're trying to go to a party. And so we get to the party. This cat has a fat lip, black eye. The other dude's just laughing his ass off. Because he was the one that threw it through the back window and ended up kicking the other guy's ass. So it was kind of a win-win for him. And so everybody was just laughing at him all night. But in the end, the dude paid for the new back window, and they were still best friends. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well the, kid, well, the kid that grew up two doors down from me, uh, it's funny. Like I write in um, my book, uh, NYPD Through the Looking Glass, like I, I was already a cop a couple of years. Like I stopped doing bullshit. I became a police officer. I was, I was in the narcotics division and I was um, off duty. I was going to the bank in my neighborhood and I was already a cop like four or five years. And he's standing in front of the bank and me, and I knew he had been in jail and I don't mean jail. I mean, prison. He had gone upstate and uh, he had turned into a burglar. And uh, I could tell just by looking at him, he was still doing heroin. And he's like, hey, Vic, how's it going? Long time no see, blah, 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 blah. And I says, I, I says, I heard you went upstate. He goes, yeah, it was bullshit. I was running a chop shop, but he wasn't. It was He was breaking into people's houses and stuff. So he goes, oh, we got to go out for a beer sometime. And I said, I said, Ricky, don't take this the wrong way. 
I said, really? I says, but what do we have in common? And he goes, oh, it's like that now? I says, no, seriously. I says, I says, you chose your path. I chose mine. I said, I can't hang out with you anymore. I said, you're fucking trouble. And he got mad. And he goes, all right, no problem. And uh, that was the last time I saw him. But I did kind of keep tabs on him. And he was in and out of prison in New York State. He actually got into trouble down in Florida. And uh, my brother called me up about seven or eight years ago. And he um, found his obituary. Was actually in the new, local newspaper, and uh, yeah, probably drugs and you know living a lifestyle. I mean, he was a heroin addict and a crackhead, and you know, I mean, eventually it got the better of him. But he was a wild kid, and like you said, like your friend that threw the rock, he was always, always doing shit. Like he got kicked out of his first high school, and that's in my book. He got bored sitting in class, and he set a girl's hair on fire that was sitting in front of him with a lighter, and as the back of her hair went up. He picked up a textbook to put out the fire and gave her a concussion. What? I mean, he was fucking crazy. Oh, my God. That's a scene. That's a scene to walk into. There's some girl's back of her hair is on fire and then some dude. Yeah, he was that. crazy. I mean, he's again, he's no longer with us. But uh, he he was the one that started the thing with the um, with the ice cream man and, and countless other things. I mean, he was always, you know, like I said, his sister's getting married and he's lighting bags of dog shit in front of people's houses in a tuxedo. I mean, you can't make that up. Yeah, that's uh, that's some. It makes for great stories. So you actually lived down in Florida, right? Uh huh. Okay, so how did the how did you fare on the hurricane? Obviously, you're doing pretty good. Yeah, no, we we're fine. Um, we lost power for about an hour, and uh, came back on. It wasn't bad at all. Where I live, it, it went beneath us. It was south of us. So thank God. I mean, the, the Irma that came through five years ago was worse. I was at, without power for a week, and I had tree limbs all over the place. But this one, I mean, you know, we we, we did we did we did really well. Where I live. That's good. That's good. Any uh, loved ones affected at all? I'm sorry? Any loved ones affected at all? No, no. No, I'm lucky. Right on. Well, we are uh, definitely sending our hopes and prayers down there to the people of Florida, for sure, over here. But uh, that's just a sidebar. So continuing on with uh, your book, how how's it uh, fared since you dropped it? Well, you know what it is? I, after writing, you know, four NYPD based books, I, I just needed to change the scenery for myself. And my younger brother, who I write, in my, uh, I, I refer to in my books as my dim witted brother's Fredo, um, he pushed me. He's like, oh, you got to write a book about our childhood. We got involved in so much shit. And, you know, it was a different time in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, he really pushed me to do it. It's, it's selling. You know, it's, um, it's almost like, you know, like, uh, like if you like Van Halen or U2, your favorite artist, and you like their music, and then you go to their concert and they're playing something else, and you're like, man, why don't you just stick to the fucking hits? You, you know what I mean? They're like playing some obscure song. That's kind of what I did because I know my NYPD books will sell because everybody's interested in true crime and bizarre shit that happens in law enforcement. And I've been blessed that all my NYPD books sell, sell fairly well. This one I was kind of taking a chance, but surprisingly – um it's selling too so i'm very lucky 
Well, it doesn't surprise me really at all because you're a very entertaining person just to talk to. Well, I I appreciate that, but you know what it is? For someone to take that leap of faith on a $10 book or a $2.99 ebook download, I mean, you're asking them to donate money and and their time. You know what I mean? So you had better get it right because if you leave a bad taste in their mouth with one book, they're never going to come back. You know what I mean? Right. You're right. I feel I, I definitely get that there because <laughs> it's kind of the same in podcasting. You could right, it, 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 right. You could, you could gain them real quick. It, it's all a uh, guessing game, really. Yeah, you can gain them real quick, and you can lose them just as fast. Mm-hmm. So, do you have anything new coming down? I remember last time that we talked, you said you were going to take a little break, try to freshen your mind up. Anything new coming down the pipeline? Yeah, I can't take a break. It's just the way I'm wired. I I always say I'd like to take a break, but I don't. Um, I'm writing another NYPD-themed-based book as we speak. I don't have a title for it. That's usually the thing I struggle with. Um, I can write a book. What I struggle with is writing about the author and the title. It's just the two things that it, that's the last thing that I, I, you know, writing something about myself, writing something about, you know, what's the book about um, and a title. Right, right. Because your books, they're not a set storyline. It's just a bunch of short stories, entertaining, funny to keep your uh, keep your laughs up. Right, you're right. My books don't have a beginning, middle, end. It's not a novel. It's it's just short. It's a chapter with short stories about a specific theme. I'll give you I'll give you a funny Catholic story, and this is from my book, the NY. No, this this story is from Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division. When I my ten years as a detective working in auto theft, it's the early '90s. My partner and it was a Saturday. We're driving around, fairly nice neighborhood, and there's these two. Young women dressed as nuns, you know, in the habits and everything, and they flag us down. Now, in that neighborhood, you had two colleges, and they were always pulling pranks and fraternity initiations. So we were used to kids running naked into a diner and stealing a salt and pepper shaker. And, you know, the, the college kids were always up to something. So, And they were two young women, I mean, dressed as nuns. So I thought they were from the College of Mount St. Vincent or Manhattan College. So I pull up. And the two women are wringing their hands and they tell us they came down to the Bronx to do some shopping and they got their car towed. So I'm like, come on. You know what I mean? Like, this is this has got to be a gag. And like, she's like, no, you know, Mother Superior, (laughs) Mother Superior went away for the weekend and we took her car. We're not supposed to have it. We came into the Bronx. We went to this pizza parlor. We parked in this pizza parlor parking lot to do some shopping. When we came out, our car got towed. She goes, we walked over to the tow lot and the guy wants $100. She goes, we don't have any money. She goes, um, and this is like before really everybody had an ATM card. And, and like they were shitting bricks. And I says, Let, you got any ID? And sure enough, they were a couple of nuns. So I told them, all right, get in the backseat of the police car. So I, t- I put the two nuns in the back of the police car. I drive to the tow yard. And if you have anybody out there, if you've ever dealt with somebody with a tow yard, they're heartless. They don't give a shit. It's fuck you, pay me. They don't care. So I go up to the gate. I'm banging on the gate. The guy comes out. It's funny. A big fat guy with his fly open. God only knows what he was doing in that trailer. And I'm standing there with two nuns. He's eating a slice of pizza. And I'm like, listen, 
I says, you know, you got these two nuns here. You towed the car. Maybe we can do something. You can let them out. He goes, it's 100 bucks. I says, come on, man. They're nuns. He goes, no, nope, it's 100 bucks. I said, all right. So I went back to, I took the nuns back to the precinct. I went up to my locker. I got some money out. And I told the nun, I says, here, take it. She goes, I'll pay you back. I says, no, no, it's all right. She goes, no, 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 no. Give me your information. I'll pay you back. I said, all right. So the two nuns get their car out and they leave, right? So at the time I was, this is like, I just started my New York City police career. So I was still living at home with my parents. So one day I come home and my father goes, sister Samantha called for you. And I said, oh, all right. And I didn't bite. And my father goes, Sister Samantha. And I go, Dad, she's not black. She's a nun. And he goes, I don't care who you date. He goes, what? Wait, a nun? A nun called here? What? Why, why would a nun call here? I go, Dad, it's too much work. Now, as you know, if you ever lend anybody money, it's always going to be a pain in the ass to get it back. This nun lived in a convent in Westchester County. And there was only one – this is pre-cell phones. There was only one phone there. So it was like a cloak and dagger thing for me to get my money back. I had to meet her in a park. After work, I was sitting on a park bench and she comes out because I guess the nunnery or the convent was a couple of blocks away. And she comes over with an envelope and she looked like a spy movie. And she's like, thank you so much for you know lending us that money that time. I really appreciate it. I go, did Mother Superior find out she took your car? She goes, no. I go, you're going to tell us? She goes, no. So it was actually pretty funny. And uh, I says, you know, you happy with it? Because she was a young woman. Like if I was – 22, 23. She was only like a couple of years older than me. She was like maybe 20, 26 at the most. And I says, are you happy with the choice that you made? She goes, are you happy with the choice that you made? I said, yeah. So, and that was the last time I had ever see, saw her again. But yeah, that was a wild story that I lent a nun a hundred bucks to get her car out. The No, the craziest part is, is think about a bystander watching you put two nuns in your car and then drive off. <laughs> yeah, it was a crowded area. It was on Broadway and like two, two, 231st Street and Broadway. It's underneath the train on a Saturday. There's hundreds of people out shopping. I mean, it's a busy shopping district. <laughs> Just a train roll by, a look, guy looked down. That guy's putting two nuns in his cop car. No, it's an elevated train. It's a sub. It's the elevated portion of the subway. Yeah, Nobody yeah. on the train would have saw it, but there was plenty of people on the street. Oh, that's freaking great. So um, as a book writer, how long does it take you to write a book uh, normally? Uh, anywhere between, for me, um, a year to 14 months. So I, 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 I'll start on a chapter. If I get bored, I do another chapter and I bounce, I, I bounce around a lot. And then at some point I've got to tie all this together. Once I have the content done, I start editing it myself. I have two types of software, Grammarly and pro writing aid. I run it through both several times. I wash it and as good a job you can do yourself. You still need someone else to edit it for you. Um, I found this company. It's called ebooklaunch.com. They're kind of like an a la carte service. So they design all my book covers. So what I'll do is the first thing I do after I've got my book together, like just the content written and I'm fairly certain it's ready to go to editing. The first thing I do is I fill out an application online with this company and I tell them the name of the book, what I, what I want. And then they design a book cover. It costs about 500 bucks. 
bucks for um, the ebook file and a paperback file. And you got to realize, so it's two files if you're going to do paperback and ebook because a paperback has to have the back jacket, you know, about the author and, you know, think, you know, with your photo on the back. So that's about 500 bucks. After I get the cover designed, uh, it I go for what's called a copy edit. So I send my content off to this company. They, they assign me an editor. And my books are usually between fifty and 60,000 words. And I have two types of edits done. So first I send it for a copy edit. They have it for about three weeks. They send it back to me. And it's my, it's, it's, it's my book, but they have highlighted the changes in red. And I either, it take, that takes me about two weeks to, to accept the changes or, or deny the changes. After I do that, I send it back to them again. It goes for a proofread. That's a, a different editor to look at it. I get it back. That costs me for the proof edit and the copy. It's probably about 1500 bucks. Then once it's edited, I send it back again and it gets formatted. I get two files. One file is a format to be uploaded on the Amazon ebook platform. And the other one gets uploaded for the paperback uh, forum. So all in for me to write a book takes me 12 to 14 months. And it costs me about 2,500 bucks to self-publish. In your career as a police officer in New York, what would you say is your craziest story besides that nun story you just told us? Oh, I've got plenty. What do you want to hear? You want to hear gory? You want to hear funny? You want to hear ironic? I mean... Uh, let's hear your ironic one. Ironic. I'm in Catholic high school a couple of years before. I'm standing outside of a classroom and I'm busting balls. The teacher comes outside and throws me a bit slap. And I wanted to kick his ass... But I was a couple of months from graduating, and I says, I can't. I, I can't raise my hands to this guy. I just want to get out of high school. Fast forward four or five years later, my partner and I are rolling around the Bronx, and there's a guy doing um, um, robberies of, of women. So what this guy is doing is he's, he's watching women go to ATMs or coming out of the bank. He pulls up, jumps out of his car, and he he does snatching grabs. He's snatching their bags. And if they put up a fight, he beats the shit out of them. So we had the guy's license plate number. We had a description. And uh, one day we see his car parked in a, in a short stay motel. We wait for him to come out. We arrest him. So we bring this guy into the station house for these robberies. So now what you got to do is you got to do lineups. You got to bring it, you know, you got to bring the victims in and you got to put the bad guy in with five fillers and, you know, they got to see if they could pick him out of a lineup. So I, after I made the arrest, I was calling up all the victims saying, hi, my name is police officer Ferrari. We, we've arrested a suspect in your robbery case from two weeks ago. I'd like you to come down to the 4A precinct to view a lineup. Well, one of the women, all, everybody was yes, 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 yes. One of the women is like giving me shit. Like, I don't know if I can do this, blah, blah, blah. So I told my partner, I go, I hung up. I says, I'm going to go to their house. I got to close the deal. I, I, I got to see if I can convince this woman to come in and view this lineup. So I drive over to the woman's house. I'm in uniform. And who opens the door but the guy that bitch slapped me five years before? It's his wife. So it's my old high school teacher's wife. And he's a born-again Christian now. And he's yelling, praise Jesus. That's fine. And he's asking, you know, I'm trying to get his wife to view a lineup. And he's asking me if I read the good book. And I'm like, listen. We can get to that later. I need you to come to the precinct and view the lineup. So he agrees. 
Um, we get to the pre, we get to the precinct. We bring the bad guy upstairs. Now, in those days, the homicide or the robbery unit would conduct the lineups for you because they're experts in this. Well, in typical Bronx fashion, on a Friday night, there's like ten homicides or whatever. There's no detectives to help us. So now, me and my partner got to do this all by ourselves. So now we've got to find our bad guy was a white guy with a scraggly beard, like dirty looking. I had to find five white guys to sit in the lineup with this guy. So I told my partner, I go, let me see what I can do. I drive around and I go to this dive bar on a Saturday night. I walk in. I talk to the bartender who puts on the lights and turns on the jukebox. And I says, hey, everybody. I says, my name is police officer Ferrari. I need five men. For 15 minutes, I'll give you $20 each to stand in a lineup. And the fucking bar, like, converged on me. So I pulled five Hall of Fame drunks out of that bar, like five fucked up people. I pulled them out of the bar. I shoved them into my Crown Vic, and I drive them over to the precinct. So we get the drunks in the lineup with the bad guy. They all sit in a chair, and they all hold a number, one. So I asked the bad guy, where do you want to sit? He goes, I want to sit in number three. I said, okay. So... The first victim comes in, she picks him out. Second one comes in, she picks him out. So it's going good. I think we had five different lineups. So on the fifth lineup, things start getting weird. So just before I'm going to do the fifth lineup, the bad guy says, I don't want to be number three anymore. I want to change my spot. I says, okay, pick wherever you want to go. So he walks up to one of the other drunks and he goes, get up. I want to sit there. So the drunk turns around and goes, how about I knock your fucking teeth out? So I'm like, guys, guys, calm down, calm down. He takes position number five. They switch. The last lineup to be viewed is my ex-teacher's wife. So they walk in. She's looking behind the glass. She stares right at him like I can tell. She's looking right at him. And she goes, I can't do this. And I says, what, what, what can't you do? And she goes, I can't ruin this man's life. I said, listen, lady, all I'm asking you is there somebody in that room that you recognize. And she starts crying. And she's like, she doesn't want to cooperate. She refuses to pick him out. While that's going on, behind the glass, my drunks start beating the shit out of the robber. (laughs) They were getting into arguments and stuff. The next thing you know, I look up and they're choking him. They knock him out of a chair and they're whooping his ass. So I have to run out of the room, right? I mean, whoever whoever was watching from the other side of the glass, it was hysterical. Me and my partner have to run into the lineup and separate a fucking hockey fight. Because my fillers, my drunks are beating, kicking the ass of, of, of the fucking robber, right? After I pull them apart, he turns around and yells, did she pick me out of the lineup? So now I can't use that lineup because he just yelled that. So, but I was like, what difference did it make? He already got picked out of four other lineups. It didn't matter with that one. So he wound up getting like six or seven years in jail. Um... And, you know, it it was just an ironic thing that my old high school teacher that smacked the shit out of me, I would wind up locking up a guy that robbed his wife. Oh, that's freaking ironic as hell. That's crazy. You got any other questions there, bud? No, that's it for right now. That's it for right now? All right. I'm just going to go back to me. So I want to hear the uh, gruesome story. You said gruesome. I wanted to hear that. I got a couple of gruesome ones. Um, you told the rigor mortis story the last time you came on, and that was a hit. Which one? The one where the guy moved the body to get out yeah. of working overtime? <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's a fucking idiot. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'll never forget him. Um, did I did I tell you any walking in any homicide stories? Oh, you haven't told us on any of them. All right, so I'll tell you one. So it's the early nineties, um, four to twelve. I was up on my my meal hour. I'm coming out, and uh, the female cop that's working the phone says, "Hey." She goes, um, I think there's a, she goes, they're yelling in Spanish on the phone. I think it's a cardiac. Can you and your partner get over there? I said, all right. So my partner and I rush over to this building. We go up the stairs and I hear screaming and crying inside an apartment. We open the door. There's got to be 10 people in there crying. And we're kind of fishing our way through the apartment. They had a galley kitchen and I see a pair of legs sticking out from the side of the kitchen. When I make the turn, I see a woman laid out on the floor. There's blood all over the place. And there's a young man on top of her crying, mama, 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 pick him up, tell him, all right, go in the kitchen, have a seat. You know, when you cut yourself, the blood on your hand is really bright red. Yeah. But the longer blood is exposed to oxygen, it becomes like a burnt rust color. So it was obvious by the dried blood in, in, in the kitchen that she had been dead several hours. So I we sit him down, the apartment's been ransacked, and we start, we're not putting the screws to him, but we're just asking him basic questions. When was the last time you saw your mother? And he goes, when was the last time I saw my mother? Yeah, you did tell us this story to where he was like, uh, he ended up killing his mom and ended up serving like 30 years. Yeah, he's years. still in jail. I'm, okay, I didn't realize I had told you that story. Yeah, oh, he's no, still in jail to this day. He um, That's 28 years ago. And the ironic thing is the cop that I was working with, he was killed. About three years after that, him and his partner went to a domestic call and um, they were fighting with the bad guy and, and, and a mirror got broken. And the guy that I worked with that night night, uh, night slipped and a shard of glass got him in the groin, hit him in the femoral artery. And uh, he almost bled out and they rushed him to the hospital. They put him in a compression suit to save his life. But he had lost so much blood and he, he kept stroking or having a heart attack. He died a young man, um, Vinny Gadis, great cop, love working with him, and unfortunately, he's no longer with us. Ooh, that's rough. That's a tough way to go. Yeah, the the men and women that put their lives in uh, danger every day when they wake up, put that uniform on, turn that key, it's a... Uh, roulette of a job that's for sure it is a roulette you never know you know it's you, that that's that's a good point like in my book the nypd's flying circus i write about that i said you know a 20-year career with the new york city police department is like a merry-go-round you have your ups and your downs and if you stay on that horse too long you're going to get thrown on your head like you got to know when to get off that ride because if you don't you know, it's going to turn on you. Like you said, it's like a roulette wheel or a merry-go-round. Eventually, something bad is going to happen to you. The longer you stay, it's just you just keep pulling, pulling. And, and at some point, your luck's going to run out. Yeah. What? So did you ever do, like, traffic cop stuff, things like that, pulling people? Hated it. Um, every NYPD cop on patrol has to write summonses. They'll tell you, no, there's no summons quota. There absolutely is. In my time, you could, you could arrest Osama bin Laden and deliver 10 babies. If you didn't write a book of parking tickets, which is a book of 25 parking tickets, write 10 moving violations, 10 of which had to be three red lights because those are the big ones. Those are the revenue earners. You were going to get a subpar evaluation. You were going to get a talking to. So every NYPD member has to write summonses. They call it activity. I call it bullshit. But in addition to that, every NYPD precinct has a couple of guys, the summons guys. 
Those guys work alone and they're either out there writing a couple of books of parking tickets a day or writing at least 25 moving violations a day. Those guys are kind of like the pariahs or outcasts of, of, of the police department because nobody likes them. You know what I mean? They're banging hardworking people. And you'll get phone calls from other precincts, from other cops like, hey, do you know so-and-so? He wrote my fucking brother-in-law a ticket after he, you know, had proof that, you know, he's related to me. I'm like, I I don't know what to tell you, you know. And in the old days, you know, if guys kept doing that shit, the old timers would take their lockers and put it upside down in the fucking shower and, and run the shower on it to like, you know, knock this shit off. And it, it's the, the, the summons guys tend to be the guys that were picked on as kids. You know what I mean? Antisocial, never dated a pretty girl. And now their way to get back as society, their power is in the pen. You know what I mean? That's the guy that's going to write his own mother a ticket. Like, sorry, ma, the law is the law. So they're not too well liked, you know, in the locker room. So as a traffic cop, do you remember the feeling of pulling people over and walking up to that car not knowing what's going going to happen? Oh, all the time. And a lot of times, a lot of gun arrests and drug arrests and all sorts of shit happen as a result of a car stop. I was never a traffic cop, but on patrol, I had a right... Like what I told you, 25, 10, and 3, it's, it's, it's burned into my head. And it wasn't just one supervisor. It's everywhere I worked until I went to the detective bureau. Um, yeah, you never know what you're going to get. I was just telling a story the other day on a podcast. Um, it was a Saturday morning, probably, again, about this time of year, uh, probably about 10 o'clock in the morning. My partner and I pull over this Nissan Pathfinder, and I think it was for a taillight out. And uh, I, I, I approach on the driver's side. And it was a young Spanish man. And you could tell he was out from the night before, like he was wearing a silk shirt, shirt, he's wearing shoes, he's wearing slacks, smelled of cologne. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. And he looks like he's kind of hung over. And, um, you know, I'm talking to him and he's fidgeting and adjusting his waist. And I says, well, step, if you don't mind, step out of the car. Let me show you the taillight that's out. He gets out of the car and he's, he goes again to adjust his waist. And I think he's got a gun in his waist, right? So I reach for his waist and he reaches for me. When I grab his waist, I feel the gun, right? He grabs my hands and now I'm fucking in the fight of my life with this guy and I'm wrestling with him. My partner comes running around and I, I, I can feel the gun and he's got my hands and I'm like, shoot him, gun. And he goes, are you sure? I'm like, shoot this motherfucker because he's fighting with me. If that gun comes up and he gets control of it, he's going to shoot the two of us. So instead of shooting him, my old partner pistol whipped him. And when he cracked him, the guy's body went limp and the gun popped right out of his waist. And we locked him up. And uh, he got out on bail. And uh, what wound up happening was he got busted for doing a home invasion a couple of months after that. And then he wound up getting like at least something like eight, ten years. So, yeah, there's a lot of bad people out there. And, you know, sometimes on a car stop, it just kind of. It's like rubbing that lamp and the genie pops up. You don't know what's going to happen. So did you have a lot of those guys that would just come back over and over and over? Do you just knew them by name? You're like, hey, he's back and you're sitting in that chair over there. What do you mean? Like repeat clients? Oh, yeah. 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 Especially in auto theft because, and I mean, the vast majority of my career was in auto theft. Um, Yeah. It's the same names. You know what I mean? And sometimes they'll do time and then, you know, they'll come back out and, they, you know, they, that, that's their job. They go with what they know. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There were several guys like that that we were, you know, 
doing cases on them. They go away, they come out and, you know, they're back in the game. Do you have one that you would always catch and he'd be like, ha ha, you got me again, Bob. There was one guy, um, probably the most prolific car thief that I ever, you know, was involved with. He was involved in that case where they were shipping cars to China and we went up, we went on a wiretap on this guy. And, uh, in addition to stealing cars that were getting shipped to China, I mean, this guy, like, we couldn't keep up with him. Well, once we went on his wiretap on his phone, it was like, to give you an example of how dedicated this guy was as a car thief, he's going to his, his he was living with his girlfriend and her uncle died. And they're en route to her uncle's uh, funeral. And he spots a black Nissan Maxima, I'll never forget this, with Bose speakers. And he tells her, just wait here. Jumps out of the car with her, steals the Maxima with Bose speakers, and then follows her to the funeral, attends the funeral with the stolen Maxima, and then takes it out to New Jersey. He had a specific order for that car, and he's laughing about it, bragging about it on the phone, like, yeah, she got pissed off at me, but, you know, I've been looking for this goddamn car all this time and, you know, couldn't let it go. Uh, This guy, he was stealing for so many different things. He was involved in, I mean, mastermind criminal. That's crazy. Oh man! What's up with you over there, there, Ethan? Nothing, just listening. Just listening in. Yeah. You enjoying yourself? Yeah. It's crazy being on a podcast. It's a little bit different than being twitched. Yeah. Whatever you call it. Yeah. So, what are some besides like weapons and handcuffs? What are some like other basic tools that we might not know, but you'll definitely know because you had a career in that. What kind of tools? Do you yeah, use? like basic tools that you need that we might not know. Um. Well, the NYPD, um, even though it's the largest police department in the country, they don't trust its members with things. So we've tasers have been around and, and stun guns have been around forever, but in the NYPD, it's only. Certain supervisors carry it. Now, I don't know now. Nowadays, they might. But in my day, they didn't. You know, it's funny. I became a cop in Florida for a short time after I retired from the NYPD. And one day they hand me a box with with a a taser in it. I'm like, what the fuck is this? They're like, just put it in the trunk of your car. We'll do training on it next week. Like the NYPD, they would be like, don't touch that fucking thing. Like you wouldn't even see that thing. Um, In in, in an NYPD police car, you have – they have this plexiglass shield that you can stick your – it's got two handles that you stick your arm through for crowd control or if you got like a, a dog or a barricaded EDP. Um, so I, it, a lot of this equipment is supposed to be in the trunks of police cars, but what reality is that, that that plexiglass shield winds up in somebody's house upstate New York where their kids use it to, to, as, as, as a sleigh down the snow. Um, the snare pole, that long pole with like a loop on it, to like to grab like a stray dog that usually winds up in a bar somewhere to control unruly drunks. Um, what what else? Um, we got a. If you have ever seen that expandable baton, it's like a metal stick that you go like that and it goes bing bing. It's like a, it's a, it's a, it's a. Just look up expandable baton. If you hit somebody with that, man, holy shit! I've never I never got to use it, but. If you hit, so you would break someone's fingers off with that friggin' thing. I, I'd rather get hit with the good old fashioned nightstick than that expandable baton. Yeah, because the end of us made out of some really hard steel, isn't it? 
The whole thing is steel. Yeah. Well, Except the for the handle. It's like solid, isn't it? The oh, yeah. And then, like, so we started, when I started, we had the wooden nightsticks. Then, I don't know, they came up with those expandable batons, that TJ Hooker, like, it's a black nightstick with, like, the knob sticking out of it. That fucking thing didn't work. That was around for about six, seven years, and then they went back to the nightsticks, the wooden nightsticks, because they didn't work. That's crazy. That's pretty interesting, though. Yeah. Did you get to use any of the special equipment that, like, SWAT used, anything like that? No, I wasn't in SWAT, but in autocrime, we worked with a lot of wild shit. So, like, sometimes – so a tag job is when you'll steal a car and you'll change the vehicle identification number on it. So, say for argument's sake, you come to me, I'm a car thief, and you say – I, I want a brand new, I, I want a Honda Accord. And I'm like, all right, I'll tell you what, I can get you a two-year-old Honda, what's a two-year-old Honda Accord going for now? Over 20 grand. Give me five grand, I'll get you a two-year-old Honda Accord. So what I'll do is I'll go to a junkyard and I'll pick up a wrecked 2020 Honda Accord. Like say it was burned or something. I'll take. I'll, I'll buy that thing for like 2,500 bucks. I'll take all the VIN numbers off the wreck. Then I'll go and steal a 2020 Honda Accord, and I'll take all those VIN numbers, and I'll put it on that, and I'll sell it to you. Now, you know what the deal is, but, I, but I'll tell you, listen, you can't bring this car to the fucking dealership because if they plug it into the computer, they're going to know the VIN numbers don't match. So you got to bring it to a buddy of yours that's willing to work on it. You know what I mean? And, and when you're ready to sell it, you got to sell it to somebody that's, you know, that knows the deal that you can trust that they're not going to bring it to the dealership. But a lot of times what they'll do is like on foreign cars, you lift the hood on the firewall. You got a 17 character VIN number stamped right in that metal firewall. What the bad guys will do is sometimes they'll take Bondo and cover the that and stamp in their own VIN number or sometimes they'll cut the VIN number out and tack weld the firewall from the stall from, from the salvage car on there. So what I would do sometimes is take that metal out and I would use there's different types of acids, sulfuric acid to bring up ground down engine numbers and firewall numbers to bring up the old number. It's called acid re- restoration. I used to do that quite a bit. So you'd have a car that you knew was stolen. The identity was changed. And then you'd, you'd put an acid over it and a number would come up. You'd write it down and then you keep rubbing the acid across it until you were able to, to, to figure out the VIN number. That's crazy. So how many cars do you think out on Craigslist and on the Internet would be like that? Plenty. I had a whole career picking those cars off. Oh, that's freaking crazy. Well, that's a good, that's a good piece of advice. People, when you go to buy a car from somebody uh, – that's not at a dealership, take it to the dealership, get it plugged in, make sure it ain't stolen. Right. Well, okay. So this is, I mean, my book, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division, there's a whole chapter on how not to get screwed over buying a used car. So Carfax is only as good as the information that's plugged in. So say for argument's sake, you, you want to buy a car that's a couple of years old and you plug it into Carfax and it doesn't have a salvage history, but the car started in California and then be careful with a car that you see that's been titled in multiple locations within a year because that's a red flag because that's called title washing. There's something wrong with that car 
And by what they're trying to do is bouncing the pick. The car never went to these places. The title is getting mailed to different addresses and someone's registering that title in that to get a salvage off of it, to, to, change, to change the odometer mileage on it. So that's a red flag. If you've got a car that's only a couple of years old and it's been registered all over the country, uh-uh, there's something up with that car. Yeah, I got a prime example. I uh, We were just looking for a vehicle at my job and I went to check out a truck that only had about 30,000 miles on it and it was 10 years old. What, what I found out further inspection into the truck the whole bottom say it looked like that truck had been submerged in a lake it's a flood car year oh yeah and they were they were talking it up you know it looks like you'd get 10 miles down the road the whole underside just fall out from under you it was so rusted it was gross gross and they'll do a good job at covering that stuff up. And you got to be real meticulous of where you look to find the rust from the flood. Oh, yeah. Flood cars or salvage cars, re- rebuildables. You know, they're selling you a car that the frame's been bent. You know what I mean? All the parts on it. it you know, you, you look underneath the hood of a car. You know, look, look, at the, look at the bolts holding the fenders on. It shouldn't look like a wrench turned it. You know what I mean? Look for the pixie dust underneath. Like if it's this spray over or you can smell like I know what a body shop smells like. You open the hood of a car, you can tell if it's been painted. You know what I mean? Or you can smell that dust that, that's in there because the dust sometimes will stick to the paint. But yeah, things like that, like you can tell the, not, the bolts on it have been turned with a wrench. That That's not normal. Mm-hmm. You're right. Fully right. Well, we're coming up on about an hour. I think it's a good point we can uh, close her out. What do you think? You got any more questions? No. He's answered all my questions. All right. Well, it's about close. We're going to go ahead and wrap this up. It's been a pretty good hour. Uh, Tell everybody where they can find you again, Vic, where they can find your book, social media, all that. Okay, so my name is Vic Ferrari, V-I-C, and like the car, F-E-R-R-A-R-I. Just go to Amazon and punch in, go into the book section and, and type in Vic Ferrari. All my NYPD books will pop up. They're all about 240 pages. They're all $10. Um, they make great $10 stocking stuffers, and it's everything you want to know about the New York City Police Department. There's short stories in it. And like I said, Grand Theft Auto will tell you everything you wanted to know about the stolen car industry, the NYPD's flying circus, cops, crime, and chaos is embarrassing and funny stories about the NYPD, NYPD law and disorders, another book. And be sure to check out Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. Like I said, they make great $10 Christmas gifts. Oh, yeah. Great reads, very funny stories. I have one on my nightstand that I'm reading right now. I think it's a circus one. Ethan, go ahead and plug your Twitch one more time. All right, so guys, make sure to check out my Twitch. Like he said, Yoda, I am 51 on twitch.com, capital Y, no spaces. I stream on the weekends, sometimes. (laughs) Awesome. I appreciate you coming on again, Vic. It's always great having you. Always enjoyable conversation. Um, Everybody, make sure to go check him out. He's such an awesome guy. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Have a good weekend.
You too, man. And uh, well, that's all the time we have for today. Make sure to go find us on Facebook and Instagram, The Blue Collar Enlightenment Show, and at The BCE Show on Twitter. Make sure to follow us. Give us that five-star net review. Help us get found. I appreciate your listening. Thanks. This week's shout-out goes to...